The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Medtronic. Medtronic is dedicated to the pursuit of life-transforming health tech. From AI to robotics and beyond, we're reinventing what's possible, and we're just getting started. Visit Medtronic.com to learn more. What are you grateful for in this moment right now? Hey, listeners. Welcome to In the Arena. I'm Jackie Goldberg. And I'm Leah Smart. And today we are joined by Mike Robbins. Welcome, Mike. Hey, glad to be here. Awesome. So Mike is an expert in teamwork and leadership and emotional development. He's a motivational speaker and a writer, just published his fifth book. We are all in this together, creating a team culture of high performance, trust and belonging. He's also been featured in NPR, ABC News, Harvard Business Review, the list goes on, just to name a few. What we really loved about Mike is his passion around empowering and inspiring other people. So his work is really anchored in teaching individuals and organizations how to be more authentic, appreciative, and effective. So we are so, so excited to talk to you today, Mike. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. Thanks again for having me. It, it is really such a pleasure to have you, Mike. So just for our listeners and for any of our listeners who've listened to one of our episodes around around the books that have changed us. I talk about one of Mike's books called Bring Your Whole Self to Work, published in 2017. And that book changed my life uh, in so many ways. And if you listen to that episode, you'll, you'll hear a little bit more detail around the how and the why. But when I read that book, I emailed Mike right when I finished it, not knowing him, but sent him an email and just said, I love what you're up to. I would love your mentorship if possible. And um, really thinking about what he brings to this world and what I want to bring to this world. And Mike responded like less than 24 hours later, Mike responded. And that was a few years ago now. And he's been an incredible mentor to me, as well as so many other people who know him or don't know him. And just so excited to have you here, here, Mike, and joining us today and, and to share your wisdom with our listeners. Oh, well, Jackie, thank you for saying that. I remember getting that email from you. I remember us connecting initially and having the first of a series of conversations that we've had. And uh, I just appreciate what you're doing. And Leah, it's been great to get to know you and meet you. And turns out we grew up in the same town and went to the same junior high school, although a few years apart. So it's uh, it's fun. I feel like it's sort of old home week here on on the podcast with the two of you. Such a small world. It's awesome. So good to have you. So as is customary on In the Arena, we like to bring you in the arena with us and get a little vulnerable by asking some speed dating questions to get to know you. So I'm going to kick us off if you're ready. Ready to roll. Awesome. Okay. So what is a hobby or something new that you've picked up since being in quarantine? (laughs) Oh, geez. Well, it's not new, but we've been riding bikes at my house with my girls. So I've been trying to get them. I have two daughters. We have two daughters, Samantha's 14 and Resi's 11. And they literally will never ride bikes with me. And for now, whatever reason, because they're bored and we're trying to do fun things, we've been bike riding, which has been awesome. Sounds so nice. And you are out in California. So the weather is pretty nice over there, I assume. So great for bike riding. Cool. And then what's your favorite baseball team, Mike? Oh, without question, the Oakland A's. Lee, are you kidding? Come on, that's where we grew up. I grew up and was born in 1974 when the A's won their third of three World Series titles. And I have been an Oakland A's fan since birth. Awesome. I was going to say, don't mess this up. 
Yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll get into this when we hear your story, but Mike was actually a professional baseball player. So hence the, the question there. So we'll hear a little bit about that. So Mike, so curious of this one, who is a mentor of yours? Well, I've been fortunate enough to have a ton of mentors over the course of my life. But one really significant one, sadly, he's no longer with us, was a man named Richard Carlson, who wrote a great book and many great books, but a book that changed my life. Don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. And Jackie, like you reaching out to me, I reached out to Richard in 1998 when I read that book and said, I love what you do. I love your book. I want to do what you do. And Richard responded to me and ultimately wrote the foreword of my first book, Focus on the Good Stuff three weeks before he very suddenly and unexpectedly passed away, which was really sad and tragic at the time. And I still miss him, but he had a huge impact on me. And in fact, the desk I'm sitting at right here as we're recording this is was Richard's desk and his wife, Chris, gave it to me after he passed away. So he means wow. a lot to me. Still a really important person in my life. Wow, that's in, that's incredible. And maybe one day you'll write the forward to my book. We can keep the tradition going. <laughs> exactly. Just got to ask, right? <laughs> All right. And I'm going to switch it up. Mike, what is one thing that you are grateful for in your life right now? Mm, many things. I'm grateful for my wife, Michelle. We actually just had a conversation this morning and I was able to share some things that I'm sort of struggling with and grappling with. And she's just got so much empathy and so much space for me and all of my passion and craziness. And uh, we've been together for almost 20 years and I'm just super grateful for her. Beautiful. Thanks for sharing. Cool. All right. So Mike, let's get into your story because you have a pretty interesting one. Jackie alluded to earlier, you know, you played professional baseball, so you weren't always a speaker and author and coach. And we would love to know for us and the listeners, tell us what's your journey. Well, so like, you know, I grew up in Oakland, California, as you did, Leah, and um, played baseball all growing up as a kid, uh, was pretty good at it, actually got drafted out of Skyline High School in Oakland by the New York Yankees. Didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got an opportunity to play baseball in college at Stanford, went to Stanford, then I got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals, signed a pro contract with the Royals, and went into the minor leagues as you do when you get drafted even by a major league team. And I was a pitcher, left-handed pitcher, doing pretty well, working my way up, trying to get to the major leagues. Unfortunately for me, my third season still in the minors, went out to pitch one night, threw one pitch, tore ligaments in my elbow. And basically, that was the end of my career. It didn't end instantaneously. It was the summer of uh, 1997. I ended up having three surgeries over the next two years, tried to do everything I possibly could not come back, but wasn't able to make it back to where I needed to be to continue to play. So that was obviously devastating and a huge life change that was both really painful and challenging, but ultimately taught me a ton at the time. And in the subsequent years, I ended up moving back home to the Bay Area and actually got a job working in the tech world at the time. It was the sort of dot-com boom time, especially here in the San Francisco, Silicon Valley area. And I got a job working for an internet company in sales and was doing online ad sales and worked there for about a year and a half, went and got a, another job at a startup. It was supposed to go public and we were going to get rich and it was all going to be great. And then the dot-com bubble burst and I lost my job. So I was out of work, you know, a couple years out of baseball, a few years out of college and like, what am I going to do? And I had a mentor of mine ask me a question at the time. He said, Mike, if you could do anything, you don't have to worry about paying the rent and you weren't worried about paying your bills, what would you do? And I said, well, I would write and I would speak and I would coach and I would try to inspire people. And he said, great, you should go do that. And I was like, now? And he said, yeah. And I was like, what are you, crazy? I was like, I'm 26 years old. I don't know anything or anyone. And don't you like have to have a degree to do that? Or I don't know how that works. So that was 
you know, a series of things that ultimately led to me starting my business back in 2001. So I'm now in year 20 of writing and speaking and coaching. And that's kind of how, how I got on the path and how I ultimately now I'm sitting here talking to you today, which I'm excited about. But yeah, here we are. Tell us, because I, I could tell by the way you were sharing, like, you've told that story a million times. And I'm curious, like, what don't you say about your story that you'd be willing to share with us and our hmm. listeners? Like, that's a great question. I think the part, well, first of all, it was super hard and scary especially in the early days. And I think the end of my baseball career was also, while it was disorienting, and like I literally started playing baseball when I was seven. And I grew up single mom, not a lot of money in Oakland. Like I was going to make it to the big leagues. Like, oh, I make some money. I was going to take care of my mom and my sister and be successful and important. And, you know, even though I had gone to Stanford and I'd been around some really successful people, like I wasn't convinced that I would be able to create any real success in my life. This felt like my shot and my way. I was going to kind of, you know, game the system and like make it to the major leagues and that would be my way and I would do it. And then when it ended, I was super scared and, and freaked out. But there was also this weird little small voice inside me that I didn't totally understand that was actually excited because I was like, ooh, now I can do anything I want. Like, I don't have to do this baseball thing that I felt like I had to do because I was so damn good at it. And it was my identity. Like, how could I possibly not do that? Especially because the pot of gold at the end of it would, re right? You know what I mean? Like, what are you nuts? You're like a broke kid from Oakland. who has got a chance to make it to the big leagues, man. You got to keep doing this. So in a way it was, it, I can see it now, of course, that it was a huge blessing in disguise, but it was hard for me to sift through that emotionally because I was also terrified, like that was my shot and I might've just blown it. Was it hard to listen to that small voice or was there really no choice for you at that time? I would say yes and no. I mean, it was hard because I didn't understand what that was. I mean, what would happen, Jackie, at the time, I would like, and this was before I even baseball ended, like, because I went through in college, I got really depressed when I was 20, like, deeply suicidally depressed. And I come from a family where my dad struggled most of his life with bipolar disorder. There's a lot of mental illness. And so I was scared, like, oh gosh. And literally I'm in my family for better or worse, they call it the family curse. And I was like, oh God, I have this now and I'm going to have to struggle with this for the rest of my life. And so because of that, and a bunch of other reasons, I started to reach out. I mean, thankfully I got some help. I found a good therapist. I, I was able to get myself through but I went sort of in and out of, of episodes of depression through my m early to mid 20s, which spanned the time while I was still playing. And then when my baseball career ended and that sort of exacerbated some of the depression. But I would wander into bookstores and I would start pulling books off the shelves. And I was just really curious, like I wanted to help to try to heal some of what was going on inside of me. But I also had this weird inkling. And again, that voice would say, you're supposed to do this. And I'm like, I'm supposed to do what? Like, stop talking to me. Who's talking to me? Like, I thought I was crazy. Like, you're supposed to do this. You're <laughs> supposed to write books. You're supposed to help people and teach people and heal. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sure my curveball's better so I can get to the next level and get to the big leagues. Like, but so even before baseball ended, but then after it was like the voice started getting louder. Like, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this, you're supposed to do this. And it was it was reading Richard Carlson's Don't Sweat the Small Stuff book. When I read that, I was like, oh, I can do this. I really want to do this. But again, it seemed crazy. Like, you might as well have said to me, you're supposed to be a brain surgeon or an astronaut or something. Because I was like, I didn't even like, I don't, I still don't even like to write. 
like I was the guy in school that like would put off every paper until the very end. Like in my dorm freshman year, they used to put odds on the little whiteboard out in front of the dorm. Like how much sleep is Robin's going to get tonight? Zero or two hours or when the paper was due. Cause I, that's just how I would do every paper. Wow. But it just was like, no, you're supposed to do this. Like keep moving in this direction. And so even with my resistance and my fear, I've continued to listen to that. I like deeply resonate with that, with what you're saying. I've had a very similar experience. And so for me at this point in my life, like I remember the moment when I was like, I'm supposed to write and this is what I'm supposed to do. And that same feeling of like, is that right? And you go through all these struggles. What was that voice? Like, what do you, what do you attribute to that voice? I think all of us, I mean, I, I think there's a deep wisdom within all of us. And it, the the challenge in life is to listen to that and to trust that. and you know, I've struggled with that throughout my life. I struggle with it now, quite frankly, in the midst of this pandemic, in the midst of what's going on, there's some really hard decisions that I'm having to make about my business and what to focus on and what to do or not do. And I was saying, this was the conversation I was having with Michelle this morning is like, babe, I want to really keep flexing the muscle of trusting myself, both listening to that inner wisdom, that intuition of what to do next, but also sometimes when it comes to really practical things, like I've had my own business for 20 years and like I did not get any training on how to have a business, run a business. Like, you know, I mean, I've learned a ton of stuff and I've had a lot of mentors and help along the way. But it's like, again, I'm not using that as an excuse, but it, there are times when I sort of go to the well. This is the same thing I feel about parenting. You know, like my our girls are 14 and 11. And I can't tell you how many times it's like I go to what I think of like the internal hard drive folder of, okay, what am I supposed to do now as a dad? And there's literally nothing there. And it's like, oh God, I have no idea. Like, and you know, it's just trusting, well, let me just trust my intuition or trust my instincts or talk to my wife or ask for some help and see what happens. And, you know, sometimes it goes really well and sometimes it goes horribly not well. <laughs> and then, you know, you just learn. And one of the things I would say about myself over the years is I do have the ability to, as the, the, the saying goes, kind of jump and find my wings on the way down, you know, and that's a lot of what getting in the arena is, is just getting in and playing. And knowing, and that's what, something I learned from sports too. It's like, I didn't always win. In fact, I lost a lot of times and I didn't like it, but you got to get in and play or else you can't win. You definitely might lose, which sucks, but you know, I'd rather play and lose than not play at all. Yeah. If you're open to sharing, what role does spirituality play in your life? Huge. I mean, and it's interesting, Jackie, that you asked that because I grew up in a way, so my father's family's Jewish, my mother's family's Catholic. And neither of them were very religious. My mom went to Catholic school growing up, but hated it. And so had a whole thing about the Catholic church. And my father, like a lot of Jews, particularly of his generation, sort of more secular Jews, like grew up culturally Jewish, but like, you know, got a bar mitzvah and went to synagogue as a kid, but sort of saw it as, oh, that's what my parents made me do. So I didn't have any real religious influence until my parents split up. And then my mom found a local church in our neighborhood that happened to actually be a Lutheran church. But she didn't want to go to a Catholic church, but the Lutheran service was close enough to a Catholic mass. It felt comfortable for her. She just wanted to be around other adults. And we, my sister and I made friends at the church. And so then I went through like, you know, communion and confirmation and all these things. But I was always the kid in the classes that was like raising my hand and going, wait a minute, I don't understand. Like, this doesn't make sense to me. Like my dad's Jewish. My mom was raised Catholic. This is Lutheranism. What is all this stuff? And how does it all work? And is there a right religion? And the, the poor pastor was like trying to explain to me. So I got to the point by the time I was like high school and into college, I just thought religion was like, I didn't get it. I didn't like it. It was for other people. And then when I got really depressed, and was in this really painful place. One of the people that I met, my girlfriend at the time introduced me to this man 
who she had met, who was this trippy, out there, kind of metaphysical, spiritual, I don't even know what he was, but he started <laughs> teaching me about meditation. He started teaching me about spirituality, but in a way I'd never heard any, he wasn't talking about the Bible or God, or he was just talking about like this universal oneness and this deeper connection. And I was like, oh, I feel that. I've always felt that. I just didn't have a name for it and didn't know what it was. And I didn't feel it at church, but I felt it just within myself. And so that started me on a whole spiritual path that I've been on ever since then for the last 25 years. And to me, when I look at my work and what's interesting, and, and you, the two of you know this, I mean, I come and speak at events like at LinkedIn and at other tech companies, and I write these books. And now a lot of my work really focuses on leadership and teamwork and performance. And it is all of those things. But I've always thought of the work that I do as deeply spiritual. And it comes from a real deeply spiritual place within me. And talking about things like authenticity and appreciation and gratitude and compassion and mindfulness and these things, to me, they're spiritual principles. It's just a matter of how do we engage with them and how do we communicate them. And for some people, understandably, they don't want to hear it that way. Or what are you talking about? Or don't put your religion on me. And it's like, well, that's not my intention. But I can't tell you how many times I'll be speaking somewhere and someone will come up to me. And this is actually a huge high praise, but someone will come up to me after and they'll say, I know where you got all your material. And I'll say, really? And they'll say, yeah, Jesus Christ. And I'm always like, whoa. And, and, I, and it's like, I don't always know exactly how to respond to thank you very much. Or, or people will come up after and they'll say, oh, are you a Buddhist? Oh, oh you, you must be in 12 step. And what I love about all of those pieces of feedback wow. is that when people say those things to me, I take it as huge high praise because what it did is it tapped into something in them that's mm -hmm. deeply personal and spiritual. And even though it's like, no, I didn't get it from the Bible or from 12 step or from Buddhism, even though those things have all influenced me, but like that, you know what I mean? So anyway, that's a long answer to your simple question that yes, yeah, spirituality plays a huge role in my life and in my work. Mike, I hear like, okay, this is incredible. First of all, Jesus Christ, I need to just, <laughs> I need to have a laugh about that because that's it really amazing. <laughs> What I'm hearing and what is like really drawing me is I'm on this journey where I also grew up Christian and, you know, that was what I was meant to do. I was an usher. I was president of the usher board in Sunday school and I found myself wayward for a number of years and I didn't come back to spirituality until three years ago. And it was at a point where I, I struggled with anxiety and I was having terrible anxiety. And so I prayed for the first time and like meant it and my life completely changed. But what I've been challenged with and really my like my mission in so many ways is how do we bring this non-religious spirituality into spaces that are either work or whatever and just break down those walls and you know, you said something interesting which is don't push your religion on me and that's such a it's so hard because people assume it's religious but what you are alluding to is that we actually all have this spirituality it doesn't really matter what you sign up for. It, it, look, it's a, it's a great and important question, Leah, because I think it's especially right now where we are in this country and in this world and with what's going on. I think I remember Michelle and I went to go see Wayne Dyer speak a number of years ago. And Wayne is somebody who sadly passed away a few years ago, but he's one of the people, as I think of like, there's a handful of people that were pivotal in my own life and my own journey of books that I read and people and I saw, ooh, and Wayne was definitely one of them. And I had the honor of actually getting to know Wayne in the last few years of his life, because his publisher for the last number of books that he did is the same publisher that's published the last three of my books. But we went to see Wayne speak and Michelle was actually pregnant with Samantha. So this was like 15 years ago. We're in San Francisco. He's actually filming a PBS special at the Masonic Auditorium. And we got to go. And he said this thing in the middle of his talk that was like kind of almost a throwaway line, but it like rocked my world. He said that which 
brings us together is of spirit. That which separates us is of the ego. He said, therefore, most religion is of the ego and not of spirit. And as he even said it, I literally turned to Michelle and was like, he shouldn't say that out loud. That's blasphemous. He's going to get in trouble, right? But I was like, you can't say that. Like, But when I started to think about it, I realized, and I say this with love and respect and appreciation for religion and the deep wisdom and beauty of the spiritual traditions that people follow and that so many people I've met over the course of my life, whether they're Christian or they're Jewish or they're Hindu or they're Muslim or that like organizes their life and their community in so many beautiful ways. But I do believe that a lot of times what happens, and this definitely happens in our country, is it turns into this egoic argument on who has the right set of rules and the right set of doctrines. And that separates us from each other. And I've always felt at, at my core, I mean, look, I literally wrote this book, we're all in this together. And yes, it's about teamwork and it's about culture. But more than that, it's really about this deep belief that I've always had that like, wait, who's the them? I don't understand. Like, aren't, aren't we all us? Like, wh wh where's the line? And I get that there's differences. And I get that we have different races and genders, just the three of us right here, that we have different backgrounds and ages and religions that we were raised, all that stuff. And it's like, can we simultaneously appreciate all the diversity and all the uniqueness? There's not a single human being on the planet that's exactly like me or either of the two of you or anyone listening. And yet at the same time, there's so much universal oneness and connection that we have as human beings, especially the deeper we go into our own humanity. And so, like to your question, I don't always know exactly. I mean, and I'm in certain parts of the country that are very conservative and religious that there's this feeling sometimes like if you don't, if you're not a part of this group, you are on the outside. And then I'm in other parts like where you guys live and where I live where it's like, okay, if you subscribe to that, what's wrong with you? You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to be open to everything, but that's still a set of doctrine that you have to believe in or else you're not part of the tribe. Do you know what I mean? And so at some level, I think with whatever our spiritual practice is personally and however we talk about it, if it doesn't ultimately focus on belonging and togetherness, to me personally, I'm not that interested. And I don't think that that's really what any spiritual prophet or anybody that we pray to is teaching us. That was my question in, in confirmation class at 13 years old when I was asking the pastor, like, wait a minute, if there really is a God, and I'm not really sure if there is, is he or she or it or whatever it is up there going, you know what, everyone's wrong except for those, that sect of Protestant Christianity that's following the Lutheran tradition. You know what I mean? Like that can't possibly be the truth. Like, I just don't believe that. <laughs> It's it's so cool to hear you say all of this and just to see the passion and the energy that's coming out of you right now, because looking at your work, knowing that this is really at the foundation of it is just awesome. And you do such an incredible job of distilling this into bite-sized chunks, into digestible information, techniques that you teach organizations. And it's it's so cool that you can really help people see and understand without necessarily getting to this spiritual quote unquote side of it, but really getting those teachings and those lessons out. I mean, it's, it's just so cool to see that. And, and we'd love to hear kind of, you know, some of the teachings that land, you know, most with your organizations, you've had a lot. So curious about that, but really on the flip side, like, curious about what kind of pushback you get as well, you know, from, from organizations on like, Hey, we don't need this or we don't agree with it. I think that would be kind of fascinating to hear. 
Well, it's, you know, Jackie, it's evolved over the years, I have to say. And mm-hmm. the truth is 20 years That's ago. That's a good thing. I, yeah, it has. I mean, yeah. 20 years ago when I first started, a couple things were going on. Number one, I was 26, right? I'm 46 now. So I've lived a little more life. The world has also evolved and changed. And I would show up 20 years ago and I would be talking about, I would talk a lot about, I still do, appreciation was really the focus of my work at the time. And I would talk about it and people would sometimes get it and sometimes resonate and sometimes roll their eyes. And in general, I'd talk about communication and teamwork. And I would have people sort of condescendingly say to me things like, oh, that's nice, Mike. But, you know, those are soft skills. Those are soft Mm -hmm. skills. And at first I would be kind of apologetic. And I know and you're right. And this is kind of an HR thing, but it's really important. And, And after a few years, I remember I finally got mad and I was like, wait a second, hold on. Soft skills are hard. Like dealing with human beings is not easy. And most of the time when I'm talking to these companies, what they're grappling with are like human dynamic challenges and like how to deal with people's egos and deal with people's personalities and deal with people's backgrounds and deal with people's biases and all this stuff. So I started to realize, oh, I need to stop apologizing for the work, not being self-righteous about it, but just being really firm and really strong and clear. Like this stuff matters. This stuff's important. And at the same time, what I've also had to learn, Jackie, is is, is how to um, communicate these things in a way that's accessible to people. Because I think any of us, and the two of you on this podcast and in general, if we want to influence and inspire people, part of that process is about challenging people and pushing people a little bit out of their comfort zone, right? That's how we all grow. But if you do it too harshly and too intensely and too self-righteously, people shut down. And they don't want to hear it. And it's like, okay, great. Like, it's not it's not a problem to have a point of view or a perspective that you come from. But my work over the years has been about how do I introduce ideas to people in a way that allows them to open up? And one of the ways I have found for that to work in my own work is through storytelling. And, you know, what's weird about storytelling is we all love stories. We all love hearing people's stories. I mean, you right here on this podcast, are you asking me about my story and people listening? One of the reasons I love listening to podcasts, I love hearing other people's stories. And what's weird about storytelling, especially our own personal narrative, our own personal story, is the more personal we're willing to be, the more universal the story is, right? So even though everyone listening, um, the vast majority of people listening probably cannot relate to oh, I was a pitcher too. And I hurt my arm in the minor leagues too. And I grew up in Oakland too. And I had a single mom too. Like, no, probably nobody listening has the same, but the more authentic and vulnerable I'm willing to be in sharing my story, the more it resonates with other people. Like, oh, I feel like that too. You feel like that too? I didn't know that. I didn't think someone who looked like you or came from where you came from or did what you did felt like that. But so that's been a way that I've found that it's a much more accessible is when we're willing to tell our stories authentically, vulnerably in the arena, right? (laughs) Then people can relate and connect. That's such a beautiful point. I'm like, you're helping me deepen my understanding of empathy, right? So like a lot of times we think about empathy as, you know, someone's been through exactly what I've been through or I've been through what they've been through. So I know how to feel bad for them. I know how to be with them and that pain, sorry, not feel bad for them, be with them. But you're showing that empathy is universal, like it, yeah. it doesn't rely on specifics of a story. Here's the deal. If, if you, let's say you and I have both had the same, like, again, we grew up in the same town. So there's things we're going to have in common or know about. Let's say you and I both had an experience where, you know, I lost someone in my life and you lost someone in your life in the same way. And it's like, oh, 
I know what it's like to have that that specific loss. There are times we can really relate to each other very specifically. Mm-hmm. But even if we haven't had the same experience, like right now, we're all dealing with this same pandemic, but we're in different circumstances, right? The two of you work for a company where you have to work from home, but you still get to work, which is great. It's still not easy, but it's like there are people who work for companies that like they had to lay everybody off because the, no, they're not open. You know what I mean? And we could compare our situations and go, oh, man, now I feel guilty because they don't have a job and I do. However, well, if we go deeper, it's like, well, what's the experience I'm having? What are we feeling? Oh, I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling joy or I'm feeling anger or I'm feeling disappointment or, oh, those are universal. We all know what, like, I don't know what it's like to be you. I'll never know that. And even if you tell me your story, I may go, oh my gosh, I can't relate to that story at all. Like you've had all these crazy things happen or you have seven siblings or you grew up halfway around the world. And I'm like, that's nuts. Like, I don't even know what that's like. I've never been there. But if you start telling me how you feel or how you felt in that experience, then I go, oh, I can have empathy for that because I know what it feels like to feel whatever emotion you've ever felt because I'm a human being just like you are. Right. And also you mentioned authenticity and vulnerability, and those are getting right to the epicenter, right, of emotions and feelings. Because when you're true to yourself, you're in tune with all of those things that come up for us and that live within within us. And we all have that to your point. It's all universal. And so that's something that we have in common. So I love how you said when you're more authentic, when you're more vulnerable, you, it's it's more relatable, right? And, and it doesn't have to be. And I'm going to use one of your exercises um, in Mike's book, uh, Bring Your Whole Self to Work. You talk about the iceberg, right? And how when people get to know each other, you typically are kind of at the top of an iceberg. If you picture an iceberg in water, you see the tip, but there's right. a whole iceberg that goes deep, deep, deep down in, into the ocean. And so when you're speaking with people and you're just having a conversation, we typically tend to be a little bit superficial and talking about the the, the doing or the, or the, uh, the about us in a kind of a superficial way, I guess, to say it. I mean, you would describe it better. But then when you ask deeper questions and when you start to share more um, personal stories and you get into that authentic and vulnerable space, it's more relatable. And you're kind of now at the bottom side of the iceberg. I love that. Absolutely, Jackie. Well, and you know, the the exercise, and I've actually written about this in just about every single one of my books because it's so fundamental to my work. But when I work with teams, one of my favorite exercises to do using the iceberg metaphor is this exercise we call if you really knew me. And it basically goes in setting up the context for we're going to we're going to have a conversation here as a team as a group. Sometimes I'll do it with a big group of people and I'll just have people pair up or often it's best if I can do it with a team of 10 or 15. It's just the actual intact team. They may even be smaller. But we go around and I usually start and it's like, look, everyone's going to have like two minutes and you're just going to repeat this phrase. If you really knew me, you'd know this about me. And it's not as much about your story and your biography. And it's more like if we really knew how you were feeling in this moment, like what's going on? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? What's happening? And what's amazing is, you know, and I usually start just by modeling it and just tell the truth about whatever the heck I'm feeling in that moment, which sometimes, and quite frankly, in some situations, I might be feeling nervous and uncomfortable right there, right in that moment about being with that group, because maybe they're intimidating me, or I'm afraid they're going to think I'm crazy or not want to do the damn exercise or whatever it is. But it's just telling the truth and lowering the waterline on the iceberg. And what's amazing over the years of doing this exercise with teams is I can explain it to them beforehand. And they may be interested or they may not, they may think it's weird or not. They may be, oh, that'll be great. Or that'll be weird or don't do that or definitely whatever. But it's not, you can't explain it. It's more of a visceral emotional experience as people start to share. 
And we can even do this. I've been doing this with teams on Zoom, on Skype, on WebEx, on BlueJeans, on video in the last few months because of what's going on. But people start to open up and they start to share about what's really happening and how they're really feeling. And what's amazing is, yeah, it is a little scary. Yeah, it's a little risky. Yeah, it's a little uncomfortable. It's definitely in the emotional arena, right? Mm -hmm. But what ends up happening, and Leah, to your point about empathy, is the natural human response to vulnerability is empathy. So as people start to really share, what, what, what I'm amazed by a lot of times as I do that exercise and have that conversation with teams is they'll say things like, wow, we've been working together for two years. I never knew that. Or I didn't know you felt that way. Or I feel like there's this way in which we can connect with each other human to human. And it gets past some of the titles and roles and identities and backgrounds. And not that those things aren't important and relevant. They are. But we start to see each other more as human beings. And I think one of the blessings... And I don't mean to sugarcoat the difficulty that we're in right now. One of the blessings of this time is I do feel like it's humanizing us even more. And being on videos with people and having the dog bark in the background or the kids run in or people in their sweats or people just talking about feeling scared or isolated or whatever the heck the real feelings are about what's going on right now. Well, I didn't wish this happened. I wish this never happened. I wish it would go away tomorrow, of course. But there is this part of like, it's causing all of us, we're collectively in this vulnerable place. And if we can lean more into that, there's a real beauty in being able to connect more deeply with each other. And what does that do for human nature, taking it even a level deeper? I think for human nature, it, it, it binds us together. It reminds us how inextricably linked we are to each other, that like what you do impacts what I do, how you feel impacts how I feel. Because that's always the case, but we kind of live in this hypnotic state that it's not. And I think if you bring it into our families and our teams, we know that with the people we're closest to, right? I mean, just think about if the people on your team, if everyone on your team is stressed out, you're more likely to be stressed out. If everyone in your house is, is like upset, you're right? It's like, because we're relational creatures, we feed off of each other. I mean, I learned this as an athlete. It's like, success is contagious, failure is contagious. And it's not based on skill. There's like some other force at play. I would be on these baseball teams and we would get hot and everybody would start playing well. It's like, how's that possible? I don't know, but we're just feeding off each other's energy. And then we'd get into a slump and everybody would suck. And it's like, how is that possible? We were awesome like two weeks ago and now we're terrible. Like what's happening? It's like, oh, because we're, there's a dynamic happening at play. And one of the ways that plays out, and I talk about this and we're all in this together, is when we show up vulnerably and authentically with each other in our teams specifically, we create more of what's called psychological safety. Psychological safety is basically group trust. It means the group is safe enough for what? I can take a risk. I can speak up. I can disagree. I can talk about a sensitive topic. I can even fail miserably, not that I want to, but I know the team is going to hold me. They're not going to shame me, ridicule me, judge me, kick me out of the group just simply because I have a different opinion or because I tried something that didn't work or I brought something up that was a little touchy or controversial. And that's what's necessary for us to really thrive as a team, as a family, as a group of any kind, is we need that psychological safety. And the way we create more of it is by being real and being vulnerable with each other. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. 
Mike, it's funny because the timing of this book is uh, is perfect around we're all in this together, especially during this pandemic. And I'm curious for, for those who might be listening to this, thinking about how they can lower the waterline with their teams or with their families or with friends, what recommendations do you have for them? Well, I mean, look, in addition to doing the If You Really Knew Me exercise, there's other things that we can do. I mean, one thing that I think is really important is for us to check in with each other. You know, I often use the example of a well-intentioned but often inauthentic question that we ask each other is, how are you? Hey, how's it going? What's up? How you doing? And, you know, usually in normal times, we just answer that like, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm great. I'm awesome. I'm stressed, whatever. Some, But it's not really, we're not really asking the question for a genuine answer. But that question has changed quite a bit over the last couple of months as we've been in this pandemic because we're asking that. And really, I think in many cases, answering it more honestly, more authentically, I think checking in in that way when we talk to people on the phone or on video at groups, emails, things, being able to do that is just, it's simple and it's sort of a polite thing to do. But more than it being polite, I feel like it's a way for us to connect more deeply with each other. You know, another thing that we can do is ask for help and support, which most people I know, myself included, love to help other people. It's great. I'm happy to help. I'm happy to support. You need something, you come to me. Hey, could you help me out? Happy to do it. Most of us also struggle asking for the help and support that we need. But if we can realize that when we ask, yes, it's vulnerable. Yes, it's scary. Yes, we might get judged. We might get rejected. Those are possibilities. More off, Way more often than not, the person we ask is going to respond in a helpful, positive way. And not only might we get some help, but we're going to give them an opportunity to do something that most people love, which is what? Help. And if we create that kind of environment within our team, within our family, within any groups or communities that we're a part of, hey, we can all ask and we're all here to support each other. Because the truth of the matter is a great team, a great family. Michelle, my wife and I talk about this all the time. There's no way that she and I both can show up 100% all the time. It's just not possible. We're tired, we're busy, we got stuff going on. But as parents, it's like, especially when our girls were young too and we were exhausted all the time, we'd have to look at each other and be like, okay, I got this much, how much you got? And it was like, we had to sort of negotiate, like how the heck are we gonna get through this? <laughs> because neither of us wanna get up, neither of us wanna tend to the children, but we have to. And it was like, we had to figure out a way to communicate that with one another. And that was in the context of parenting. I think the same is true with teams. It's like, of course, we all want to bring it all and, you know, be our best selves all the time. But the reality is we're not. And I think being honest with ourselves about that and being honest with the team, not like an excuse, but it's like sometimes I have more energy. Sometimes I'm more engaged. Sometimes I'm more fired up. Sometimes there's stuff that's really easy for me to do that's hard for you to do. Can I offer that? Can someone ask me to do that? And the reverse is also true. We put our egos aside and we say, let's leverage our strengths. Let's be real with each other. We are all in this thing together. And that's what's going to help get us through. And right now, more than ever, I think, we do have to metaphorically kind of lock arms with each other, even though we're not touching each other and we're not together physically and say, hey, we're going to emotionally get through this thing together. I don't know exactly how. None of us have ever been through this. But if we do it, I think intuitively, the reason why I think so many people are using the phrase, we're all in this together, which is weird for me personally, just because I wrote a book with that title, not thinking it was going to come out in the middle of a pandemic. But I've been trying to figure out, like, why are people saying that? And I think it's because we know intuitively when we're faced with a really big challenge like we are right now, we have to lean on each other. Like we do anyway, but especially when we're in the face of a really big challenge, it's like, okay, we're not going to be able to figure this thing out or get through this by ourselves. The only chance we have is if we lean on each other. 
What's um? There's something you said. It was that I love the quote that you said with you and your wife. I've got this much. How much do you have? And there's something coming up for me over the last like few months where I'm realizing that we make so many assumptions in relationships, particularly at work. Well, I think everywhere, but a lot of times at work, it's harder to bring down the barriers. But there is this genius in just saying exactly what's going on. Right, and and being able to say it. But the other piece of this that I've just been realizing for myself, and and I'll I'll be the first to admit that I'm a hypocrite about this, but. I think that being able to check in with other people, have them share where they're really coming from and give them space to be wherever they are. So what I mean that I'm a hypocrite is when I'm feeling any kind of emotion, what I want from the people around me, whether it's my wife or my team or my good friends, or the, I want people to give me space to just see me and hear me and get me and like not fix me, not try to talk me out of it. On the reverse, though, I, I'll be honest, sometimes if my wife's really upset or someone on my team's really upset or my girls are really upset, I'm like, could you kind of get over it? Because it's upsetting me that you're so upset. Like, I have a hard time being with their intensity of emotion. I know at my core, I want them to feel safe, to express themselves, to feel whatever they feel, because I know that's super important. And I want to create the kind of environment where it's safe to do that. The truth is, sometimes if one of my daughters is feeling really sad or really angry, or my wife is, or people on my team are, or whatever, selfishly, I just want them to get over it and be in a good mood because it's hard for me. I think we have to all understand that dynamic and give ourselves and other people a lot more space and permission and compassion right now because people are on edge in general in life, but especially right now. And when we're trying to micromanage other people's emotions, because we're uncomfortable with whatever emotion they're having, it's actually one of the most disrespectful things we can do. Mm. It's for me to basically say like, please stop being sad or please stop being angry or please stop being stressed out because it's stressing me out. <laughs> like that's actually not really fair and that's not super supportive. Yeah, and as coaches and we all three of us are coaches, we know that holding space is one of the most incredible aspects of coaching that you can do for someone else is just be there with them while they're experiencing whatever is coming up for them. I want to go back to the whole, how are you uh, Mm -hmm. concept? Because, you know, we've talked about how, and you even said not to sugarcoat this whole pandemic, of course not, but that there is some lightness, there is some beauty in all this in terms of human beings coming together and seeing that oneness and leaning into one another. And it's just so interesting to me that the how are you, which I completely agree with, it's not only like the answering that is more authentic, but it's actually the asking of the question that's more authentic. And the reason behind that seems to be that there's a clear notion that something is going on for all of us, right? Like we all are in this like, think of like common humanity. We all have something in common right now. But what I take from that is that when you do ask that question in a normal time, not during a pandemic, there is most likely something going on for that person, right? And we don't know about it because we don't have that all in common. And so how do we get something like this to stick, right? We know that, and you said it, like in challenging times, we we get brought together and there is goodness that comes out of it. But then what next, right? When things go back to normal, will we start going back to, how are you? I'm good. I'm fine. and moving on. Or do we really learn from this and pause and, and ask the question with more desire to to know the the response. You know, Jackie, I think that's super important. And the way that I think about this in something you and I can personally relate to, because we've communicated about this, I think what we're experiencing right now collectively is very similar to grief. And what I mean by that is like, for me, having lost my mother and my father and my sister and Richard and some other significant people in my life, those experiences were super painful and at the same time opened me up and realized, oh, wow, people 
are in a lot of pain, people suffer from loss that I don't think about because it's pretty intense and I don't want to think about it all the time and it's depressing and it scares me and all of the things that it does. But like what it did for me in that sense was like, I feel like I walk around in life a little more aware of grief and loss and sadness in other people because it exists within me. And I mean that like, I don't walk around with a heavy heart necessarily about it, but just an awareness. So trying to ask that question, how are you right now? We all, you're right. We all collectively know something's happening and it's big. And especially for the two of you in New York city and you're in places where it's like right in your face, you literally, it's not just turning on the news. It's like looking out the window. It's, it's, you're in a world where you can't escape it. Like after a loss, everyone who's connected to the loss is having that conversation with each other, but the world's not. So the people come up to you and it's two months or three months or six months after you lost one of your parents and like, hey, how's it going? And you're like, uh, do they really want to know? Am I really going to share with them what's going on? Because it's kind of heavy. No, I'm just going to lie and say I'm fine. And so what it's going to require all of us. So let's fast forward two, three years from now. We're out of this pandemic. Who knows what's happening in the world and in the economy and politically and all that. But let's assume it's a different, better place than we are right now. The question's going to be, can we still ask the question with the same level of authenticity and depth with a desire to really know? And can we answer it authentically? When we start doing that, the thing about authenticity and vulnerability is like anything else, it's contagious. So if the three of us and everyone listening to us chooses, we're going to show up not melodramatic, not like super hardcore intense all the time, but just like real, it might shock people in the moment, right? Like, how are you? I actually like to even ask the question, how are you feeling? Or how are you doing in this moment? Like little tweaks on it just to get it back into the present moment. And sometimes if someone asks me how I'm feeling, I'll stop, I'll take a breath, I'll check in and say, I'm feeling excited and scared and angry and grateful. And they're like, what the hell are you talking? I mean, it's like, that freaks them out. But the truth is like, all of those emotions are happening for me right now. And if I tap in and really feel them and then share them, hopefully, you know, the, if you think about even the question of how are you, when we say I'm good or I'm fine, that's not an actual emotion. That's just an evaluation of something, totally. right? And so again, moving it more into emotional language and just saying like, how are you? What's an actual experience I'm having? I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling excited. I'm feeling curious or whatever. That actually moves it into more of the realm of authenticity. And we can all start using that kind of language. And then that becomes contagious in the in a positive way, of course, with other people. Yeah. I was um, listening to two things that you said. I love that you mentioned the how are you and the feel it fine, which I, I always think of as feelings I'm not expressing. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And I'm curious on the on that side of things, reminded me of a really interesting article that came out in HBR recently. Um, and something that I thought was really powerful about that is that we may be feeling grief right now, but that they've actually added a sixth stage of grief, which is meaning. And so I'm curious from your perspective, like what's the meaning of all this? What's the meaning we could emerge with after this? You know, I, I appreciate you bringing that up because that, that article, that interview with David Kessler was really interesting on HBR. And then he was on Brene Brown's podcast. I don't know if the two of you had a chance to listen to that interview, which I highly recommend her podcast, her in general, all her work, but that conversation with David, because David is an expert in grief. He and Elizabeth Kubler-Ross you know, she wrote a book in the late 60s about the stages of dying. They teamed up and ultimately talked about the stages of grief, sort of building on her work and his. And then he wrote this new book that just came out about the sixth stage of grief, which is meaning. And if you think about the stages of grief that we talk about, there's denial and there's bargaining and there's, you know, 
anger and depression and the ultimate one the fifth one is is acceptance i'm forgetting one of them in there but ultimately the the sixth one that he wrote about is meaning and one of the things he said that i agree with and i think there is ultimately a lot of meaning in grief i think it's hard sometimes to decipher what that meaning is while we're grieving and so on the one hand i think there's a ton of lessons that i know i'm learning and a lot of people are learning right now about life about what matters about who matters about all th- all kinds of things and i think we simultaneously need to pay attention as much as we can i remember a therapist of mine years ago said to me mike don't waste a good crisis and i was like what are you talking about and she's like look you're going through hard time. It's really hard. It's painful. It's terrible. I get it. But you will get through this. The question is, who are you going to be on the other side? And what are you going to learn through this experience? If you simply just focus on surviving it, then that's what you'll get. You'll survive it. You'll get to the other side. But if you focus on paying attention, then to David Kessler's point of this meaning, then there'll be some real meaning that you can unpack as you move through this. The, The thing sometimes I worry about when we focus on meaning right now is it's a little bit of a spiritual bypass in the sense of like, well, let me just go to, well, everything happens for a reason. Well, this is really good because I'm getting to spend more time with my family and it's putting things in perspective and I can be grateful. And all those things are true as long as we really feel them with depth and authenticity and don't turn away from the fact that like, yeah, and you know what? People are sick and people are dying and people are losing their jobs. And this is like no joke. So yeah, if we're privileged enough to be sitting in our homes or our apartments, and yeah, it's a little uncomfortable, and it's a little disappointing, and I don't get to go to the movies and, and, you know, okay, fine. But like, this is having real impact on real people's lives and will for a long time. So we have to be able to hold both of those things simultaneously. And I don't know that we're going to fully know the meaning until many months and even many years after this. But I think being open to it and being aware that there's a meaningful aspect. I mean, I have felt like my own experiences with grief have been, as my friend Glennon Doyle likes to say, both brutal and beautiful at the same time. Brutal, which is kind of like how life almost always is. This pandemic is both brutal and beautiful. And the brutality is more up in our face on a daily basis right now because of what's happening. The beauty will start to emerge. It is emerging now. It's there and we can look at it. It will continue to emerge as we move through it. And in hindsight, it'll be much more beautiful and have much more meaning than it currently does because we're still in the throes of it. Yeah, that's an unbelievable perspective to share for our listeners, for us. Um, I know we are coming up on time, but I did want to just share with our listeners all of the titles of your books because I love them. They're so straightforward and you can look at it and know exactly what you're getting in a good way, right? You need to read it to really get the goodness. But I just want to read them out loud and then ask you a question. So the five books that Mike has is One, focus on the good stuff. Two, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. The third one is nothing changes until you do. And then of course, bring your whole self to work. And then your most recent one that was published a few weeks ago, we're all in this together. And just curious for listeners, would you recommend, like who who should read these books first of all? And and do you recommend that they read them in a particular order? And, And just curious, like when you wrote them, I'm sure you weren't thinking about the next one until that one came. But looking back now, what would be your advice on that? Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, it's still, by the way, for whatever it's worth, it blows my mind that I've written five books. Like I can't even believe I wrote one, let alone five, especially writing, given, so. <laughs> given what I was talking about before of not loving to write. I mean, I think, look, who should read the books? I mean, anyone and everyone, you know, I'm a little biased, of course. I mean, the truth is my first two books, Focus on the Good Stuff and Be Yourself, Everyone Else is Already Taken, came out in 07 and 09. They're each about, you know, appreciation and authenticity. And I love those books. I'm super proud of those books. I think they're important. When I read them now, you know, they feel a little dated to me simply because it was the 32 and 34-year-old versions of myself writing those books a number of years ago. But they kind of go together and they kind of build on each other. 
Nothing Changes Until You Do is a series of short essays. I kind of wrote it in a similar way that my mentor, Richard Carlson, wrote his books, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. It's a lot of stories. It's around self-compassion and around, you know, just being kind and loving to ourselves. So it sort of stands on its own. And that's one of those books. You can literally open it up to chapter 22 and just read it. They're like little blog posts in there. And then my two more recent books, Bring Your Whole Self to Work and We're All in This Together, do kind of build on each other in the sense that Bring Your Whole Self to Work is more about how we show up personally, how we bring ourselves, how we might lead that way. And then we're all in this together, sort of double clicks on the fifth and final principle of that book about creating a championship team and talks about how do we do that collectively as a group, as a team, as a company. So that's a long answer to your simple question. I would say, if you're looking at how do I become a better leader and how do I create a stronger team, you know, read Bring Your Whole Self to Work and then read We're All in This Together in that order. If you're simply looking for how do I make a little more peace with myself and be a little kinder and more compassionate to myself, then read uh, Nothing Changes Until You Do as kind of a standalone. Awesome. And and here at LinkedIn, we've purchased many of your books to give out to our teams and we continue to look forward to, to doing that moving forward and sharing your goodness with the employees at LinkedIn. Well, thank you for doing that. And you know, the thing about LinkedIn, you guys both know this, and but to work for a company that is so open-minded and so progressive and so interested in a lot of these topics and to have a CEO that talks about compassion and compassionate leadership the way Jeff does, which is so great, or to have somebody like Scott Shute, who the two of you know and work with to focus on mindfulness and compassion. I mean, it really is a blessing. And it's been an honor for me the few times I've had a chance to partner with LinkedIn, but being a part of a company that is committed to those things. And even for people listening, it's like you can be the person that brings that to your team, yes. which is what all of us need to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mike, is there anything you'd like to share with our listeners as a final thought? I think one of the most important things for us to do in life, and especially right now, is to be kind to ourselves. And I think, you know, there's something that Brene Brown posted online a few years ago that I post and repost all the time that I love. That's a mantra for me. And Michelle and I, my wife and I talk about that at home is talk to yourself as if you're talking to someone you really love. And I think that's one of the most challenging and most important things that we can all do as human beings, because we don't really see other people as they are. We see them as we are. And the kinder and gentler and more compassionate we are with ourselves, the more authentically we'll be kind and gentle and compassionate with the people around us. And what we really need right now more than anything else is a whole lot of compassion. Mm, love that. Thank you so much, Mike. This has been an amazing conversation. And I continue to just like feel joyful about um, how natural this was and how this wasn't even the course we had planned. And it's <laughs> amazing. Thank you for joining us. For any of you who are interested in ordering Mike's new book, we're all in this together. You can do that on MikeRobbins.com slash together. That's where you can go to order it. And I believe, Mike, you can order all your other books there too, right? Absolutely. Yep. Mike-Robbins.com forward slash together. Thanks for correcting. Mike-Robbins.com forward slash together. All right. Um, well, Mike, thank you. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. Awesome. It was such a privilege to talk to you today. Thanks for joining us.